Today we shall continue with our gradual path of training of a meditator or a disciple and of, out of this path of gradual path of training yesterday we've briefly touched upon the arising of initial faith which then leads to right thought such as thoughts of renunciation temporary or permanent renunciation and then yesterday we great or at length spoke about virtue sila and its definition and significance and so on benefits and then we went on to discuss the restraint of the senses indriya samara sila which also is a form of virtue one of the four and then next comes and this will be the topic for today namely mindfulness and clear comprehension so today we'll first explain briefly about clear comprehension sampajanya and then mindfulness and um, a meditator possessing this mindfulness and clear comprehension will then go on on to select the proper place, a secluded place for the meditation practice and then will work very hard to overcome the hindrances and once this has been achieved then the pasna insight in its strictest Sense will arise in the form of the three and understanding of the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and the contemplation of those three engaged in over a longer period of time will eventually lead to liberation, to, in an extended sense, to. Uh, knowledge, true knowledge and uh, liberation. So, Vijja Vimuti. Now, the relevance part on mindfulness and clear comprehension from our passage on the gradual path of training is as follows. Um, namely, and this is sort of quoted from Majjhima Nikaya, uh, the 125th uh, discourse, paragraph 20. A meditator is mindful and acts with clear comprehension when going and coming, when looking forward and backward, when bending and stretching his or her limbs, when wearing one's robes and arms bow. Now, this, of course, concerns the monastics, but for lay meditators, this means when wearing one's robes or one's clothes, and then when eating, drinking, chewing, and tasting, when discharging excrement and urine, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, and awakening in the morning, when speaking and keeping silent. So this is one section. And 
And this is sort of, you know, the section on you know, the bodily activities, mindfulness and clear comprehension of bodily activities and postures. And then we have another section which deals you know, with uh, you know, selecting a proper place for practice and then actually starting you know, doing the practice. And the text for this is as follows, and again I'm quoting, now being equipped with this lofty you know, virtue or morality, equipped with this noble control of the senses, injurious and war, and filled you know, with this noble mindfulness and clear comprehension, a meditator chooses a secluded dwelling in the forest, at the foot of a tree, on a mountain, in a cleft, in a rock cave, on a burial ground, on the wooded tableland in the open air on a heap of straw. Having returned from arms round um, after you know, the meal, the meditator seats himself or herself you know, with legs crossed, body erect, with mindfulness fixed before him or her. So this is what you know, the original text says. Now, Clear comprehension does represent some difficulties in its interpretation. And when we look at the literature in the English language, then we find all sorts of interpretations that have been offered over the years. Now, for instance, Venerable Nyanaponika, just to give you a brief selection here, defines this clear comprehension, Sampajanya, as right knowledge or wisdom, Nepanya, based on right attentiveness, mindfulness, Satnasati, which means mindfulness is somewhat or plays a foundational role, and based on this, then this clear comprehension arises. And now, I.B. Horner, who you know, translated a number of texts from Pani into English and who was also a president of the Pani Text Society in London, now Oxford, uh, she defines it along the Pali you know, definition of Sampajana Kari Hoti, which means it is acting in a clearly conscious way. And the Venerable Sarupandita uh, speaks along uh, the same line you know, when he says you know, that Sampajanya means full awareness or clear comprehension through personal experience. One should act, and uh, the second part is important, one should act consciously with full knowledge of what one is doing. So again, Sampajanya Kari Hoti. Now, Venerable Nebiku Bodhi points out, and Venerable Analaya goes even further to say that this term, Sampajanya, is being used differently in the text. And um, at one in you know, the Samyutta Nikaya 47, 
in clear comprehension is certainly explained with reference to bodily postures in routine activities of everyday life and certainly then at a different place in uh, the Samyutta Nikaya, namely 4735 it's certainly used with reference to the arising and passing away of uh, feelings of thoughts and perceptions so this is quite something else and so now we need to find out then how to interpret the Sampajanya in our context. And speaking with Venerable Analaya, one can say that mostly the the interpretation of Sampajanya in the text is as fully grasping or comprehending what is taking it in place. And um, so one is clearly, one clearly knows what is uh, happening. And this uh, then is different from awareness uh, itself. Now, the Dhamma Sangani, which is the first Abhidhamma work, clearly defines or lists the Sampajanya as one form of wisdom. And oftentimes it is also said to be an incipient or an initial type of wisdom. And Venerable Analaya points out it has the potential to grow into well discriminative wisdom. Now, in our context, namely in the context of the second paragraph of, well, observing virtue and then practicing the restraint of the senses and then practicing mindfulness and clear comprehension, then choosing a place and so on. In this context, this clear comprehension can be seen as certain, well, a mental quality that then precedes the development of mindfulness. So this is a quality that you need before actually applying mindfulness to whatever happens in one's formal sitting meditation. And as for the first paragraph, namely mindfulness and clear comprehension with regards to general activities and certain postures, there it's has to do, or it's yeah, well, it has to do with the. Um, 
clearly knowing or comprehending the posture that we are going to assume at the time when we are uh, assuming it. And so in the sense of uh, um, being aware of the purpose and or you know, the benefit of it and the suitability of it, whereas awareness or mindfulness has to do uh, with regards uh, uh, to uh, the different sensations or different objects uh, as they are occurring while we are seated, while uh, meditation is actually uh, taking place. Now, to give you an example for uh, clear comprehension, and it's easy, in the end it's easier you know, than uh, it uh, may you know, f- you know, s- seem at first sight. So let's say uh, you come into the meditation hall and so, you know, then the you know, question arises where to sit and so, you know, then knowing very well you know, that so, you know, the particular seat has been taken by another you know, meditator, you uh, then decide to sit there. And so this may be beneficial to sit there, but it's not necessarily suitable because it's the seat that another meditator has taken earlier on or at the beginning of the retreat. And so awareness or mindfulness would then come in when the person is seated in meditation and actually observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen and other predominant objects. Or, to give you another example, and this has, I'm not speaking from imagination, but what I'll say has really happened in Lumbini. So, a meditator comes into the meditation hall and then graces this lofty place by by doing a headstand. (laughs) 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 And then saying, well, I'm practicing clear comprehension and mindfulness and and <laughs> so doing a headstand while everyone else is sitting is surely beneficial. It will help my blood circulation and whatnot. It might even help me to calm down. <laughs> and so. Uh, then uh, a person, uh, who, you know, the person who is doing it, you know, this might uh, justify you know, this act to himself or herself, saying, "Well, I haven't done my hatha yoga exercises, and uh, you know, since I'm art an ardent follower you know, of hatha yoga, um, you know, it should be done right now." <laughs> and so, so then you know, the person proceeds to you know, do his headstand uh, uh, in, in the midst of a seating. Now, um, from from an ordinary or normal point of view, things look somewhat different. It may be beneficial to do a headstand in the meditation hall, but it might not necessarily be suitable, especially not when everyone else is calmly calmly sitting there and calmly peacefully sitting there and practicing. Thing. 
And so, so in this case, proper, you know, clear comprehension would be to come into the meditation hall and then to clear, to be clearly conscious of what one is going to do next. And then to check whether you know, this is beneficial and, and suitable or not. And the commentary goes even further you know, to check you know, whether you know, one is within one's domain or territory, and this will be explained later on, and you know, also you know, to be clear. Uh, with regards uh, uh, to uh, the true nature of uh, what is uh, happening. And um, so that's the part of clear comprehension. And so the mindfulness part is simply you know, to be mindful of the different uh, sensations occurring. Now, this this clear comprehension, as the Venerable Side Upanita points out, is incipient, is a form of initial or incipient knowledge that is a form of wisdom. But it does not as yet qualify as certain true Vipassana insight, since it is not yet seeing Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, the three universal characteristics. Now, the commentators have tried to make sense of this clear comprehension by proposing this fourfold application, namely clear comprehension with regard to the benefits or purpose of an act or deed planned. This in Pali is known as Sataka Sampajanya. Then, and so this means that one checks whether what one is going to do is certainly beneficial or not, what is the purpose of all of this. And then the next step is, so comes in the form of Sapaya Sampajanya, which is clear comprehension with regard to the suitability of the act that one is planning to do or just about to undertake. And um, and suitability you know, is in the sense of whether it fits certainly into you know, the you know, general you know, environment or you know, not. Now, to give you an example um, for the, the well, you know, the clear comprehension of benefit, and then clear comprehension you know, with regard to, to suitability. No doubt it will be beneficial to give a Dhamma talk. However, if some teacher attempts to do this in a discotheque which is full of people at midnight and people are halfway drunk, then it might be out of place. And it might not be all that suitable. 
and so, you know, then clear comprehension with regard to, to the terrain or domain gochara sampajanya in the Pali scriptural language has the following meaning namely is you know, the object you know, that one is observing and the way one is observing it uh, is that within the domain of satipatthana or not so um, wandering mind is occurring and one is totally getting lost in the wandering mind so question to you would this, would this come under Gochara Sampajanya namely clear comprehension of the territory or domain is one, with one within one's domain or not No. The answer is no, because uh, one is no longer mindful of the wandering mind. And uh, the other case, the positive case would be wandering mind is occurring, and then immediately one is mindful of it, and one labels it, one observes it, one knows its nature, and thus one is considered to be within the territory or domain of Satipatthana. And so the last case is that of Asamoha Sampajanya, namely an undiluted comprehension of the activity concerned, or we might also say in the words of Bikobodi, discernment of things in their true nature, free from delusion. And it is this Asamoha Sampajanya that is closest with a somewhat further developed form of wisdom. So the first two forms of clear comprehension, namely as certain clear comprehension of benefit and suitability, these correspond to well prudence or discretion, which are the initial or incipient forms of wisdom. Now, maybe one or two more examples for negative examples for this clear comprehension of benefits and suitability. To be on this retreat is surely beneficial if one practices hard and is diligent. However, if one then decides to, um, well, let me see, no, I'll change the example. Reading a book. Is surely beneficial if it's uh, you know, some of some interesting you know, topic. However, if one you know, does this you know, during you know, an intensive vipassana or satipatthana retreat, and then you know, this uh, may not necessarily you know, be you know, suitable. And 
if uh, an, an activity is beneficial yet it's not suitable, you know, then it's best uh, to you know, abstain from it and uh, you know, simply focus on you know, one's uh, meditation practice. Now, there are clear-cut differences between this clear comprehension and mindfulness, the factor that we shall explore next. Now, as we've seen, clear, clear comprehension is a form of wisdom, whereas mindfulness has to do with awareness, being present to the moment or what is happening in the moment. The characteristic of clear comprehension is given as non-confusion, whereas the characteristic for or of mindfulness is given as non-forgetfulness. Sorry, as non-superficiality. Asam apilapana lakana in the Pali scriptural language. And then the function of clear comprehension is given as investigating or to judge, whereas the function of mindfulness is given as well not losing the object out of the sight, so non-forgetfulness. And then the manifestation of clear comprehension is given as scrutiny, whereas the manifestation of mindfulness is either a state of confrontation, being face-to-face with the object of observation, or is guardianship or protection. So from these two, or from the two definitions of clear comprehension and mindfulness from the Visuddhimagga, you can can see already you know, that both of these uh, mental you know, states you know, or qualities you know, work differently, play you know, different roles. Now, let us go on and explore some of the main features of mindfulness. And this is the important part and in particular important for all of you. Now, as a meditator, we need to have a clear understanding of what is meant by mindfulness and we need to know its many different aspects and how to apply it to our meditation practice. Now, mindfulness Usually in the Mahasi tradition of Vipassana meditation gets interpreted as sati and upatana, which means establishment of mindfulness. And so establishment of mindfulness or establishment is in the sense of approaching and then remaining there. Approaching an object and then remaining with that object. Now, there are different interpretations of the term satipatana around, such as sati and patana, which 
then according to the commentary to the Majjhima Nikaya is supposed to mean foundation of mindfulness and Venerable Analayo together with Professor Rice Davids interpret the term Satipatthana again as Sati and Upatana but Upatana more in a sense of presence of mindfulness presence or attending to whatever predominant object occurs now, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita goes along you know, with the you know, interpretation as Sati and Upatana, so as establishment of mindfulness, and then in a further step, based on the commentaries and sub-commentaries, he explains that, you know, the term Pa you know, or in, in different ways, and so, you know, we shall you know, later on see how, you know, how he does this. Now, as Sotnet mentioned, the characteristic of mindfulness is non-superficiality, or in other words, not wobbling. Not the mindfulness, our awareness should not skim over the surface of uh, you know, the object, object of observation. And so, hence, our mindfulness should, as the Visuddhimagga illustrates it, not be like a dried and hollow pumpkin thrown onto some river, but, and a dried and hollow pumpkin, what will it do if it's thrown onto a river? Uh, it will float away and it will you know, bob up and down on the surface of uh, you know, the you know, river. Uh, yes. And so, uh, the, so you know, the mindfulness or this pumpkin is uh, um, a negative example you know, for mindfulness. And a positive illustration is uh, that of a stone or a rock uh, thrown into uh, a river. Now, and you can imagine that certain stone will immediately you know, sink to the you know, bottom of uh, that uh, river and it will not uh, no, 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 stay on the surface and float uh, around there. And so, uh, likewise, our mindfulness, you know, whenever some predominant uh, object of observation arises, then it should clearly sink into you know, the object of observation. And when it happens like this, then, a med- then it will be easy for a meditator in the presence of concentration you know, to know, you know the you know, true nature of that uh, object, such as you know, the tension, the stiffness, and the tightness, um, and in the rising movement of the abdomen and uh, then you know, the relaxation and contraction and maybe some vibrations in the falling movement of the abdomen and so on and so forth. So that's uh, Apilapana Lakana in the Pali scriptural language. Now, the function of mindfulness was given earlier on as keeping the object in view or as an absence of confusion, non-forgetfulness. Seeing, 
of what easily happens in our meditation practice we are observing a certain object like uh, you know, like uh, well the rising and falling again the rising and falling and uh, for you know, a few moments and since we've observed it already so many times uh, after a while the mind says okay enough of this let me go on daydreaming this is much more fascinating and uh, with this then we've lost sight of the rising and falling movement of uh, the abdomen we're no longer uh, keeping it in uh, view and uh, thus how can one possibly then know the true nature of uh, that uh, primary object and uh, so the meaning here, the practical uh, meaning of asamosa uh, rasa, the function of mindfulness as non-forgetfulness uh, or keeping the object in view, is not to uh, uh, not to forget it, not to uh, miss it, and not to let the object of observation disappear from one's field of observation. And the illustration that the Venerable Sadhupanita likes to use in uh, this certain context is uh, that of a badminton player who uh, keeps the shuttlecock in view. So during a badminton game or match both of the players have to keep their eyes on the shuttlecock and if one of the players loses sight of uh, the shuttlecock then the next time it comes around he or she might miss to hit it now the manifestation of uh, the first manifestation of uh, mindfulness is uh, then given in the Pali scripture language as uh, we see a bimukha bhava bachapatana. Bachapatana is your manifestation. We see a, no, mukha is the face, abhimukha is face to face, and then bhava means uh, state or condition, and uh, then we see is the objective field. Or instead of saying, objective field we can also say the field of uh, objects or simply our uh, object of observation hence uh, this then means it has mindfulness has the manifestation of being uh, in a state of um, being face to face with the uh, uh, current object of uh, observation or the field of uh, uh, observation uh, the field of objects and so this then indicates at a state, the, the mind, the observing mind, being in a state of confrontation with the object of observation. And so the mind should confront you know, the object again and again. And so not just observe, figuratively speaking, you know, the object you know, from you know, some you know, big distance, and or you know, from you know, from you know, from a certain angle, but you know, go or observe the object full on. 
on. And only then will the meditator be able to know its qualities. Now, when this is happening, um, moment after moment, for a longer period of time, a meditator might find uh, that his or her uh, mind is relatively pure. So, uh, pure, freed, uh, or purified of unwholesome mental states. And uh, thus, uh, the secondary manifestation of uh, mindfulness is given as Arakpachabhatana, namely as uh, a state of, or manifestation as uh, guardianship or protection. So, in the presence of mindfulness, or mindfulness, sorry, mindfulness will manifest, if it's present, uh, as the, the mind being in a state of protection or guardianship. So the mind is protected against the arising of unwholesome mental states. Now, please, this point has tremendous significance for our actual meditation practice. Now, when things are going smoothly and mostly wholesome mental states are arising, then we don't have a problem. However, when at times we are overwhelmed by some strong, unwholesome no, or destructive emotions or no, 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 mental states, uh, this is the point when we need to remember the second manifestation of mindfulness. Now, when we're overwhelmed by destructive uh, mental states, and then now oftentimes these suddenly can be quite strong, and then we don't quite know what to do, how to overcome these. And so the way to go is to remember this continuity of one's mindfulness from moment to moment to moment to moment. And so uh, if we then manage to establish this for maybe a couple of minutes in a row or even longer, then we may find that those destructive mental states gradually will lose their power or their momentum over the mind and then eventually they disappear. And so this particular aspect here of mindfulness is really helpful to remember in particular when we have to deal with strong mental states like fear or worry or anxiety and so on. Now, the approximate cause or the nearest cause for the arising of mindfulness is again of a you know, twofold uh, nature. And uh, you know, the first uh, approximate cause is given in Pani as Tirasanya Padatana, which means uh, the strong perception of the object of observation uh, is uh, the, the most important uh, cause to bring mindfulness uh, about. And so, this means that when we observe 
curve or, or you know, when an object occurs and even though it may be quite, mm, quite mild or quite faint in terms of intensity yet if the perception of it is clear and strong now then uh, the mindfulness will also be you know, clear and strong however if uh, no, at some other point an object is there and certainly we just perceive it faintly you know, then you can imagine that if uh, the perception is weak you know, then you know, the mindfulness also will have nothing you know, solid certainly, to work with no solid uh, datum to work with and certainly this mindfulness certainly will also be uh, weak Now, the second certain approximate or nearest cause for the arising of mindfulness lies simply in the four establishments of mindfulness itself. And this refers to the fact that one moment of mindfulness after another over a longer period of time will lead to rather strong and powerful mindfulness. So the Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to give the following illustration for this, namely a person who, a student who pursues uh, you know, a worldly education, well, starts uh, with primary you know, schooling, and so the knowledge that has been acquired during primary school then serves as uh, uh, as a foundation for you know, the knowledge in you know, the secondary school, and the knowledge from you know, the secondary school you know, you know, serves as a you know, foundation you know, for or support for the acquiring or acquisition of tertiary or knowledge in tertiary education. And so, so um, the further one goes on, the more one relies on what certain came first. Now, this much regarding the classical fourfold definition of mindfulness, as or as can be found in the Visuddhi Magga, and apart from this, mindfulness should and could assume a number of other qualities. One of them is immediacy. Now. Now, to illustrate this point, please think of some formula one race. And think of yourself or imagine yourself to be one of those Formula One pilots steering a Formula One racing car that can go at extremely high speeds. Now, if you're participating in a, in a race and your mind is somewhat, or your mindfulness is somewhat sluggish, then very soon you'll be out of the competition. And so 
So what is required is superb awareness and uh, immediacy in uh, being aware of whatever uh, happens uh, next. And so so if some uh, um, other pilots uh, starts or tries to overtake you, then immediately you need to uh, act on this and you need to prevent uh, this uh, attempt of uh, overtaking. And uh, likewise, Air Force pilots, jets and plane pilots, usually need to possess a tremendous amount of uh, awareness and uh, their awareness needs to be not slow uh, but very quick. And uh, I've once heard uh, that uh, jets uh, pilots uh, have uh, a decision span of just a few, no, no, very short, no, a fraction of a second. So should they do this or no, no, that? If no, they take too much no, time no, thinking and deciding, no, then no, the plane no, might, uh, the jet plane might already take a big nosedive and uh, crash. So, likewise in the meditation, in our meditation practice. So, please don't see you know, the meditation as uh, an activity of uh, you know, maybe, um, you know, playing cards, uh, just some, you know, leisurely game, you know, but rather something you know, that uh, you know, requires utmost uh, awareness and in particular uh, or immediacy of uh, uh, our mindfulness. So, as soon as an object of observation has arisen, then right away, without any hesitation, without any kind of thinking, should our mindfulness be right with that uh, object. And nothing should come in between the arising of the object and the actual observation of it. Now, if our mindfulness is not fulfilling this particular quality of immediacy, then um, we'll, we won't be aware of what is actually happening in the present moment. And uh, as uh, we go on meditating, we realize you know, that uh, you know, the objects of the future haven't arisen yet, and so in that sense you know, they are uncertain, and uh, you know, the objects of the past have passed already, and all that we have of them is just a memory. And uh, now that's not the same as the actual experience, and in that sense, you know, the objects of the past are also uncertain. And so, the only certain objects that we you know, have to work with are you know, the objects of uh, you know, the present uh, moment. Now, in the context of uh, mindfulness, you know, we need yet another quality, namely our mindfulness should be concurrent or 
or to use a somewhat modern expression in sync with uh, what is happening. So let's say your rising movement is occurring, so it's moving, and then your mindfulness has to go, or has to be in sync, has to be concurrent with the rising movement as it is happening. And it should not be lagging behind in time. If it's lagging behind, then again, how can we possibly know its know the nature of the object? Now, the venerable Sadhu Pandita very much likes to point out that the mindfulness that is required during an intensive Satipatthana retreat is not just some ordinary, some casual type of holiday type of mindfulness, but picnic type of mindfulness, but rather an extraordinary or outstanding type of mindfulness. And as such, uh, it is known in Pali as visita. And so, apart from this, our mindfulness should be uh, well intense and so, uh, then excessive and persistent. Now, the Buddha speaks of uh, you know, controlling the you know, five controlling faculties, and uh, you know, those can be grouped in, uh, in two, into two pairs, namely uh, effort and concentration, and uh, faith and uh, wisdom. And for those two pairs, any kind of excess is uh, no good. But when it comes to mindfulness, the Buddha boldly declares it can never be in excess. And so, you know, thus. Um, you know, don't worry you know, about your mindfulness becoming too intense or you know, excessive. Just keep uh, you know, developing it. And so the mindfulness of a beginning meditator will be relatively weak in comparison you know, to the you know, mindfulness of a stream enterer. And again, you know, this mindfulness will be you know, relatively weak in comparison to you know, non-return, an anagami. And so an anagami's uh, you know, mindfulness in turn you know, will be you know, somewhat you know, weaker you know, than you know, the mindfulness of an arahant. So we've got a long way to go and, you know, with our mindfulness and so we might as well you know, develop it already as best as possible. Now, as indicated already earlier on, the particle Pa of the Pani term Satipatthana you know, may assume, according to the commentaries and sub-commentaries, different meanings. And one such meaning is as Pakhandana, which means rushing, leaping, and uh, then plunging. Now, rushing, leaping, plunging with regard to what? Well, obviously, the object of observation. So, as soon as an object of observation has arisen, the uh, observing mind 
and needs to plunge or needs to rush and you know, then leap and plunge into you know, this object of or into you know, the object and this should be done again not in a hesitant manner but with much courage and with much momentum and with force however it should be done in a somewhat systematic manner and when our mindfulness is rushing towards an object, again, there is no time to ask or ponder over questions such as, how come this object has just arisen? <laughs> what, it, what are the karmic forces from the past <laughs> that have made this pain arise? What did I do? What kind of a misdeed did I do that I have to suffer this? pain. So if you're you know, thinking like this, you know, then you're off track. And, uh, and then your mindfulness is no longer rushing uh, you know, towards uh, the object. And um, um, sometimes we tend to analyze what is uh, happening in our meditation practice. And so, so am I now experiencing anicca, or is this dukkha, or is this anatta? And again, this will take us away from the actual observation. So what we need is just a bare observation of what is really happening. And so, so any kind of thinking, analyzing, reflecting, and so, or imagining, fantasizing, and so, hesitating, and so on, will take us away from the object. Now, the next aspect that or the next interpretation of the particle above the term satipatthana is in Pali as given as upaganhitva bhavatati and so this translates in English as firmly grasping or seizing the object of observation now see when some object has occurred, like maybe a pain somewhere in the body, and so we're working with it, then we need to firmly grasp it and not let go of it. If we let go of it, if it slips, slips away, like a slippery eel does when we try to catch it, then how can we know the nature of the object? And so we need to be like a well of like you know, those people who, you know, who seasonal workers who are working in the you know, vineyards and so, you know, then are you know, well, grabbing or seizing a bunch of grapes with one hand and maybe with the other hand you know, with a knife, holding a knife they then uh, cut off uh, um, you know, the 
uh, the, the branch. And so this then requires a firm seizing of the bunch of grapes. And the same thing goes for our objects of observation, whatever the object may be. And by now, you will know from your own meditation practice that some objects are relatively easy to observe and, so, and also depending on certain conditions of the mind. And at other times, an object may be there, you attempt to observe it and it slips away. Again, you try to catch it and again it certainly slips away. So it is at this point that we need to firmly uh, grasp it. Now, the Venerable Mahasi Sayadu, when he gave uh, his, uh, or when he developed his certain uh, meditation instructions, you know, was certainly uh, very systematic and certainly um, very well aware of a gradual approach you know, to you know, the, or the need for a gradual approach to the meditation practice. And so he would certainly request his meditators you know, to first observe those coarse objects such as paints and eggs and so on, including the rising and falling. You know, and the rising and falling is certainly coarser than the and out breathing at the nostrils and then once a meditator had or has mastered you know, the observation of some you know, coarser you know, objects then he or she would be asked to observe you know, somewhat more refined objects like maybe you know, wandering mind or you know, sleepiness and once a meditator has or is doing well with those you know, then the instruction would be okay now observe even uh, more refined objects uh, than wandering mind or uh, sloth and torpor. And there are certain mental states that at the very outset of our meditation practice very much elude us. We don't even know what they are all about. Just to think of equanimity, to most of you, this doesn't say much. Or, what about ignorance itself? Now, are you clearly aware of uh, ignorance? Do you really know what certain ignorance is in practice, how it manifests? So, these are you know, some the mental states that are somewhat uh, difficult or more difficult to observe. Now, another aspect to our you know, particle, aspect of uh, mindfulness and um, um, an interpretation of the particle file of the term satipatthana is uh, as bhavatati and so this then means an unbroken continuity. Now, unbroken continuity of course of our mindfulness and as mentioned already at, uh, during the instruction talk on, uh, on the 7th of uh, July, it's the continuity 
and the unbroken continuity of our mindfulness that is probably most uh, relevant or important for a good development in our meditation practice. So if our, if our mindfulness is somewhat discontinuous, then our development in the meditation will also be an on and off affair. Sometimes some development is there or some progress is there, and then at other times again, things are slowing down or even stagnating. Now, the problem with the discontinuity of the mindfulness is, as uh, we discussed earlier on, um, that during an absent period of absent-mindedness, the unwholesome mental states have a field day, and uh, easily uh, do they arise in the stream of uh, consciousness. The Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to compare those unwholesome mental states to weeds. When it comes to weeds, there's nothing special you have to do. You don't have to apply fertilizer. <laughs> you don't have to water them. They'll just grow happily and easily and quickly. But when it comes to some, um, you know, some beautiful flowers, and then or other plants. Uh, of your particular choice, uh, then this takes a lot of work. So you need to you know, dig a hole, you need to you know, plant you know, the, uh, the flower, and you know, then you need to you know, give it some fertilizer, you need to you know, water it you know, regularly, you need to pull weeds around it, and so on and so forth. So, um, planting some some gardening flower or garden flower um, this requires a lot of work and effort and this can be compared to the arising of wholesome mental states so if we want wholesome mental states to arise in our stream of consciousness we have to work for them we have to put in a pretty good amount of effort otherwise it will simply not happen And the Venerable Mahasi Saido uses an illustration for the continuity as well as the intensity of our mindfulness by, by explaining. In the old days, when people, so this is many hundreds or many centuries ago, when people didn't possess gas lighters as they do these days or matches in order to start a fire, well back then they had to rub two sticks against each other again and again and again until until a certain heat would develop from the friction and then eventually a spark would ignite and from this suddenly then a fire would develop. 
Now, if uh, in those old days one were to you know, rub uh, you know, the two pieces of uh, the two sticks against each other you know, for a while, and then to stop and uh, you know, to you know, take a rest, and then and then after a while to continue rubbing, then you, it's obvious you know, that uh, no, the spark will ignite, no, f- no fire will form, and so you know, the you know, fire of wisdom uh, will not uh, arise. And so, so likewise so, you know, with our you know, meditation practice and and our mindfulness. A certain degree of intensity and continuity is just necessary for things to move on, for wisdom to ignite. And so the you know, Venerable Sadhu Pandita likes to uh, well give another you know, illustration, namely uh, that of uh, house lizards or chameleons. And so, you, know, you may have uh, noticed, well, around here we don't have any of those house lizards, but, <laughs> but maybe at a lower altitude. Um, or, or elevation. In Asia there's no shortage of them. Uh, and, you know, there are those house lizards. Uh, so you know, creatures that uh, you know, have four legs and you know, they share a very particular you know, feature. Namely, when you know, they are um, moving towards or in a, in a certain you know, direction towards a certain destination, and then what do they do? They move all you know, all in one go, all at once. Uh, Jackie, you shake your head. Uh, uh, indeed. So what they do is you know, they display it you know, very much a stop and go you know, behavior. So all of a sudden, a house uh, lizard can be uh, seen dashing ahead, then uh, for no particular reason stopping, then gazing around and uh, maybe looking out for for a mate, and then at an unpredictable point, all of a sudden, again dashing forward for a few, you know, for a certain stretch, and then again to stop. Now, house lizards and chameleons apparently uh, can survive or have survived like this. But if meditators, with their mindfulness, display a similar stop-and-go behavior, then they might not survive it. And such meditators then might be uh, termed as chameleon yogis. (laughs) And I assume that none of you come under this category. Now, um, there's so many things to be said about mindfulness. Now, one of the universal characteristics is that of anatta, which means non-self, and which means that things are not happening according to our wishes, our whims, and fancies. 
and said instead you know, formations occurring in the body and in the mind are occurring of their own accord and this is something to be remembered in the context of mindfulness so when we are observing some you know, predominant object and then we should not try to manipulate it we should not try to control it we should not try to make it happen in a certain way or to create a certain experience maybe we've heard from some fellow meditator about some you know, outstanding meditation experience and then we try to uh, make it happen in our meditation practice and so um, all we need to do is simply kind of step back and uh, with a calm or you know, with a calm and detached attitude we just observe whatever is going on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant it doesn't matter whether we like it or dislike it it also doesn't matter Now, when mentioning that certain mindfulness certain should have this confrontational aspect, I forgot you know, to you know, point to uh, yet another quality of mindfulness as dynamic. So, um, our mindfulness, if practiced properly, you know, should certainly possess this dynamic quality and certainly shouldn't be sluggish or you know, lethargic. And uh, uh, you know, therefore, and it should kind of fit you know, the term of uh, observing power rather than you know, just uh, mindfulness. The term mindfulness you know, doesn't necessarily you know, bring across you know, that uh, dynamic quality. And so, if uh, mindfulness meditation is done uh, properly, it certainly uh, can be uh, seen as uh, probably uh, one of the most dynamic, if not the most dynamic uh, activity uh, that is uh, around. Now, other qualities that our mindfulness should possess is that so, um, when it comes to you know, the controlling you know, faculties and also you know, the pairs so, you know, with regard to the enlightenment factors then, or, or groups of three, you know, then mindfulness you know, should perform a balancing you know, quality. So it assures you know, that you know, the you know, respective you know, pair of controlling faculties or you know, of you know, those enlightenment you know, factors is well you know, balanced. None of them is in excess or nor lacking. And then when we observe an object of observation, we should do so in a detached and uninvolved manner, neither suppressing an object nor acting out on it. 
and certainly so we just certainly observe it certainly as it is and if it certainly then um, if it gets stronger you know, for a while then we just observe it that way and so if it eventually passes away then we just observe that now Venerable Gunaratna, Bhante Gunaratna from the Bhavana Society recommends in his book Mindfulness in Plain English that our mindfulness should have a, sorry, a non-conceptual quality. So when we observe an object, we don't form a concept about this object, but rather we just observe it for what it is. And this is easily said, but difficult to do. And in particular, at the very beginning of a retreat, meditators frequently see the rising and falling movement of the abdomen in a certain, well, according to certain concepts. Sometimes, as uh, you know, the opening and closing of uh, of a flower, or as the inflating and deflating of uh, a balloon, and uh, so on. Now, one point that has proven to make a huge difference in a meditator's practice is that of reminding oneself again and again and again about the predominant nature of the object. So you're observing an object like maybe some numbness and so you're observing it for a moment and so you clearly know it and then you ask yourself and now what is the object like and so, um, and then again you repeat and now what is it like what is the quality of it and now and now and now and now and so on and so forth for a longer period of time for 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour now this is actually quite difficult to do, to maintain this continuity of oneself, a sharp mindfulness from moment to moment. Now, if you find that your practice is somewhat weakening, then try to do this, and it will clearly have a galvanizing effect on your practice, it will you know, push your practice you know, or, or, or um, enliven your you know, practice. And even though at the you know, very outset of our retreat during the you know, opening talk, there was much uh, uh, mention of uh, uh, different aims uh, for you know, the Satipatthana practice. Yet, when we actually do the practice, we don't think about uh, the goal 
or about the aim. We just do the practice, we're just totally you know, focused on you know, or present you know, to the you know, present moment and so you know, that's all. And um, the nature of the Satipatthana meditation is that and when we put in a fair amount of balanced and steady effort and we're mindful from moment to moment to moment and then everything else will unfold by itself. We don't actually need to do that much, we don't need to interfere that much. Now, the uh, one last uh, point for today is that uh, mindfulness serves kind of uh, like an all-cure, a cure for everything. And mindfulness serves, when it's present, as a prevention for a prevention against you know, the arising of unwholesome mental states and so should however some unwholesome mental states have arisen in the stream of consciousness owing to you know, some lapse in one's practice then it's the same mindfulness that will serve again as the cure to well then um, let go or to abandon those unwholesome mental states. So mindfulness is uh, a prophylactic as well uh, as uh, uh, a curative uh, medicine. Now, or one, one more point. That namely, in the course of the, the meditation practice, our mindfulness assumes different qualities. So at first, like during the first and second insight knowledge, the mindfulness is somewhat often um, or has an intermittent you know, quality to it. Sometimes it's there and then it's not there. and. So, and then in the third insight knowledge the mindfulness becomes somewhat more panoramic during the fourth insight knowledge it's extremely sharp and quick and very much tuned into the present moment and then in the tenth insight knowledge again it kind of assumes a panor or yeah, assumes a panoramic quality, and uh, later on in the next insight knowledge, the knowledge of equanimity about formations, uh, the uh, mindfulness uh, becomes uh, more one-pointed, and it stays with one uh, object at a time and not uh, with a multitude of objects at the same time. Now this then uh, does. So, uh, bring us to uh, the end of uh, today's talk, and uh, let me conclude uh, then, or, or by wishing uh, that may all of you possess uh, the different uh, ingredients uh, mentioned in uh, the 
the gradual path of training of a meditator or a disciple and in particular may you possess plenty of clear comprehension, sampajanya and even more mindfulness and so may your mindfulness possess all the different qualities as outlined during this talk and thus being well equipped may your meditation develop more and more, may much concentration arise and may wisdom unfold in leaps and bounds and lead all of you to at least the realization of the path of stream entry and with this also comes an understanding of the peace of Nibbana and this is it for today Now, as announced already last night, if you want, today we can have some questions and hopefully there will be some answers. So please go ahead. Don't expect me to know everything. My scriptural knowledge is limited. Can I ask a yes, please. You said a few minutes ago that the, your observation of the object should be non-conceptual. Yes, right. Then you said you should ask yourself what is the nature of the object, and that seems to me the two things contradict each other. No, no, no. When, when you ask what's the nature of the object, um, then this is not looking for... <laughs> you are not looking at the object or, or knowing the object through a concept, but rather as it actually is happening. So this is not, not the same thing. So the identifying as nature comes afterwards? Yes. Okay. No. So, no, in, in the process of uh, observing an object, we have different uh, mental you know, factors involved. Uh, there's at first you know, the labeling, and which is uh, no, 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 perception, the mental factor of perception. And then there's the actual awareness or mindfulness of the object, which is mindfulness, sati. And uh, no, then no, we have uh, um, well, no, the knowledge of uh, the object itself, or knowledge of the nature of the object, such as being you know, stiff or hard or tense or this or you know, that. And that last aspect stands for uh, wisdom or knowledge. And so the concept can come in you know, in the following way, uh, that um, we're observing an object and in the back of our mind we have uh, you know, a, certain, a certain idea of uh, um, what this object is all about. No, and uh, Or maybe we've heard, like I mentioned earlier on during the talk, um, 
of uh, a certain experience. And uh, so we remember this, and so, you know, then you know, we see you know, what is actually happening in the light of, our, you know, uh, of the experience that we've heard about. Uh, no. And so, you know, then easily you know, the concept might take over and so the concept then seems like the real thing, uh, which of course it's not. And uh, so, as, so as an approach here, as meditators it's always good to go beyond the concept, to cut right through the concept and to go you know, for, to go deeper and so, you know, to you know, know what is happening in terms of sensations, in terms of movement and so on. Uh, no. See, so with regard to an object you know, visually you know, shown, you know, there are different levels here. You know, there's this certain you know, conceptual level you know, to an object, and then um, you know, the, um, the, specific, you know, the the ultimate level. And we want to go down to the ultimate level. Could you explain a little more how that would apply to a mental object, uh, such as? something that is in, intrinsically rather conceptual, an, an image or a, or a thought? Um. So, in the case, in the case of, an, uh, of a thought or you know, an image, and then it's uh, first of all being aware of this, being mindful of it, and you know, then not getting caught up in the image, not identifying with it, and uh, you know, then simply to uh, realize that this is an image or a thought and uh, that there's not much uh, no reality to it. So the, the nature is just image or thought? That's yes. Further than that. Yes, right. And not not getting caught up in the content of you know, that uh, image. Thank you. No, let let's uh, no no. Let me answer this. So, uh, an image should uh, no, 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 arises, and so no, it's an image of uh, some scenery, something that uh, we may have uh, no, seen in the past, and. So, and uh, then uh, it's con- associated with uh, all sorts of memories, no? memories from the past. And uh, an uninformed meditator would go for you know, the, you know, the image and in particular you know, the memories. And a well-informed meditator will just uh, will be will be aware of this image, and and then uh, will not get sidetracked by the the memories, and just just realize okay this is an image and that's all it's just another object and uh, and then the meditator sees it passing away and that's it. No. Okay. Any other question? Yes, please. Yona. Different, um, stages, sometimes naturally occurring panoramic versus very one-pointed kind of mindfulness. Um, and yet, in the effort to be mindful, um, well, my, my experience now is that at times it's it's very focused and at times it's panoramic and should I do anything I mean I'm assuming these things 
just occur by themselves. Yes, right. To do other than if, if there's a moment of awareness of one thing after the other, uh, is that okay? It's okay. Now, now just, just be a witness to know what is happening. So once in a while, just uh, you know, take the mindfulness itself as an object and uh, uh, you know, notice its uh, you know, its quality. And so you know, when it's one point, or you know, one point and very focused, you know, then you know, you know, be aware of this and know this. And so you know, when it's more of a panoramic you know, nature, okay, then just uh, you know that. No, there's nothing, nothing that you need to do. There's no need to change that. No, at least not at this point. Then, yes, Alan. Yes, you were talking about synchronizing mindfulness with the object. Yes. And sometimes it seems to me that by the time I'm, by the time the mindfulness arises of the object, the object has changed. Because it takes a little bit of time to be mindful. Yeah, right. So I'm never, I feel like I'm never quite synchronized. Ah, now what you're saying is quite realistic, and this is indeed what happens. You know, for quite a number of days into into meditation retreat, it does take a while for one's mindfulness to really shape up and to be really tuned into you know, the present moment and uh, into what is happening. See, you know, many people assume you know, that our mindfulness uh, per se you know, in a, a natural you know, state is already quite good. Not at all. It's pretty <laughs> lousy. Yeah. And so, uh, so we really need to work at it and uh, again and again you know, sharpen it and uh, to make it you know, be tuned into you know, the present moment. And uh, actually it takes a long, you know, it might take quite some time uh, until um, like in the knowledge of equanimity about formations, which is one of the higher insight knowledges, um, the, the mindfulness is so sharp that, you know, let's say, a thought is uh, uh, arising, and uh, one can see the thought, you know, just the beginning of the thought, uh, as it's happening, as it's unfolding, and before the thought unfolds completely, you know, the mindfulness is so strong you know, that the thought certainly you know, gets kind of smashed, you know, smashed away. And uh, so it cannot even unfold. But you know, during our you know, beginning days of the you know, retreat, you know, the mindfulness is so dull you know, that uh, the thinking, <laughs> the thinking has every chance uh, you know, to, you know, to uh, unfold. And it's uh, maybe you know, in a bad case uh, only after you know, maybe a minute or two that we realize, how huh, you know, I've been thinking already for quite some time. And. Uh, so, you know, mindfulness, just like with all the you know, other you know, mental factors, wholesome mental factors, you know, uh, they undergo you know, or they cover a whole spectrum from you know, very poor quality to high quality. And, uh, Even like when you're walking, if you notice the touch, by the time you're mindful of the touch, it's different. Uh, yes, indeed. I guess that's the same. It's the same, you know, same thing. 
you know, and you know, so in this situation again and again, you know, bring that, you know, you know, try to you know, be even closer you know, with the latest development in your you know, meditation practice. And no. Then, any other questions, comment? Yes, please. Why don't you talk about the um, how to balance mindfulness takes you at least at first seems to take a great deal of effort. And yet at the same time there should it seems to me there should be a certain amount of letting go to the process. And sometimes the effort gets in the way of the letting go. In other words, watching the rising and falling of the um, diaphragm, the mere observation of will change it. So how do you, like let's say I would want, I'd want to see how, how, how do I naturally breathe? But as soon as I begin to observe it, it changes. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's so. Um, how do I? I'm trying to balance this effort with letting go to see things naturally. Uh, so, the way to proceed is you know, that you know, as you're observing you know, the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and so, you, know, you have the feeling that so, you know, you're interfering with it, then, or it uh, you know, changes you know, the quality of your rising and falling, then just be aware of that. You know? The very fact that so, you know, your rising and falling is certainly you know, changing. And so, you know, for a while it will continue to be like this. At times, so, you know, the rise and fall will kind of happen somewhat more naturally, and at other times, so, um, well, the, the, the attitude with which you are observing it will also influence your rising and falling. And then you'll just have to you know, be aware of that. So. If, for instance, you know, there's a lot of uh, effort you know, being made, or actually over-efforting, so you're overdoing it, well, you know, this will lead to a tensing of the mind, and this will also then manifest in the rising and falling itself, and so as, as a rather tense rising and falling. And just be aware of it. That's what's happening at that point. And so, on a somewhat... Mm, or maybe within ten days, a period of ten days, um, you, you might get to a point where then the rising fawning is truly happening of its own accord. And at that point, I'm sorry, a meditator really feels that he or she is no longer you know, interfering with it, no longer controlling it in subtle you know, ways. So that's, you know, that experience lies ahead of you, and you know, just you know, for the time being, be patient you know, with whatever is happening. Thank you. Sounds like there's hope. <laughs> there's plenty of hope. <laughs> And also maybe to add one more thing, um, you mentioned you know, the rising falling should happen more naturally. This, uh, this expression or statement should happen uh, more in a natural way. You know, this is actually an expectation. No? And so then what you might do is just take the expectation itself as an object and so then label that accordingly as so having a certain expectation regarding the rise and fall and so then be aware of it and so know its nature and then sooner or later that expectation will go.
Now, and that then you know, will also you know, make it easier you know, for the rising and falling just to be. Yes, Steve. Um, uh, a number of times in what you were saying, you, you talked about uh, seizing uh, or uh, uh, grasping strongly. Or grasping, um, yeah. Uh, or, or, or like the stone penetrating the water. The, all those sorts of things. Um, and yet there are times when um, I uh, am aware, let's say, of uh, an itch or a pain and am trying to stay with that. And as I do, there is on the edge, in the background, uh, somewhere else, uh, another thing um, trying to arise, uh, beginning to arise. And I, and I don't know whether to make a little more effort to stick with what I'm sticking with, the original pain, the original tickle, or whether to acknowledge that this new tickle is also happening. Mm-hmm. And I can... I should, uh, could pay attention to it instead. And I mm-hmm. have a, a difficulty deciding. Mm-hmm. So, in that kind of a situation, there may be go by the following rule of thumb. If uh, your mind is well, um, well focused on the original tickle, no, and you're noticing all sorts of things uh, about it, and so, so there's plenty of uh, knowledge there arising, no, then stay with it. But if you have a hard time observing it and knowing this original tickle in the first place, it's not really working. Then, and you're noticing it somewhere, somewhere else along the edge, another tickle or edge, then go ahead and move your attention to that second object and then observe that for a while. No. So sometimes when things, when, you know, when the mind is well, you know, well adjusted and well focused on one object, then it's certainly you know, safer, or it's not safer, but uh, it's better for the overall development of one's practice to stay with that certain object you know, for a longer period of time, um, rather than you know, changing objects every now and then. And frequently changing objects you know, brings about a certain you know, well agitation in the mind, a certain distractedness of, of the mind. And so there's no need to do this. You know. And uh, theoretically speaking, as a meditator, you could do, you, know, you, you could spend an entire sitting just observing one single object, like the rising and falling, or, uh, or in, an itch, or a pain, or whatever else it might be. And uh, Okay, it's already past eight o'clock, quarter past eight. Maybe you know, this much for you know, tonight, and so, you know, the next time I talk will be you know, tomorrow.